Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. Greetings from Bulgaria. Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 32? These are the words of God. A Psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to open it this morning. Lord, we pray that it would open us, that you would show us through the light of your word what needs to change in our hearts, that we would come to know you better through this. Lord, would you guide my words and the thoughts and intents of my heart as I bring the word this morning, and would it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christians, we know both from experience and we know theologically that we still sin. Have you you stopped to think about that before? We know if you are in Christ that you have been saved from your sin, that you have been delivered from sin, you've been justified, you've been made right with God, and yet you still struggle with sin. There's still things in your life that tempt you and that you and you fall into certain temptations. Why is that? Well, we know that, so we know that experientially, but we know also theologically that it's because there's a continuing war in our flesh, between the flesh and the spirit in our, in our bodies. Paul talks about this in Galatians, that even though I want to do the things of the Spirit, sometimes I give in to my flesh, and the flesh and the Spirit war with one another. And this is what we experience in our lives. So we have been, we need to, first of all, before we get into this psalm, want to make sure that we understand that we have been, as Christians, if you are in Christ, if you have confessed Christ, then you are justified before God. His righteousness clothes you, and nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. However, there still is sin in our lives, and we need to understand why that is, and then what, what do we do with that? If we have sin in our lives, as, as we'll see in this psalm, we need to confess our sin. And confessing our sin means essentially to agree with God about it. The word to confess literally means to say the same thing about whatever it is you're talking about. So when we have a confession of faith, we are saying the same thing about our faith or saying the same thing about the faith of all the saints through the ages. When we confess our sins, we are saying the same thing about our sins that God says about it. 
So this psalm, Psalm 32, is a psalm for those who have hard consciences and need to be convicted of clinging to their sin. That there is sin in their life, even if they are Christians, that they have not confessed before God. This is a psalm also for those who don't know what to do with the sin in their lives. Maybe they are convicted by their sin. They feel the guilt of their sin. They feel the weight of their sin. But what do I do with that? It's also for those who have tender consciences and simply need to be reminded of the overwhelming grace and forgiveness of God. Here's the, the central point of this sermon. Sin must be covered. Sin must be covered. We can try to cover it ourselves, and in the end, that is self-destructive. Or we can turn to the only one who can actually cover our sins, take it to Christ, and it is done away with completely, and there is new life there. We often attempt to cover our sin ourselves, hiding it from God, tucking it away in a corner, or trying to cover it in a pile of of good works. We try to make up for the sin in our lives by the way we participate in other things, by the programs that we are a part of, by going to church every Sunday, by making sure we're really good at our Bible reading, by keeping certain laws or rules litigiously. But those things, if there is sin in our lives, those, thing are no, those things are nothing but hypocrisy because they are an attempt to cover our sin and we can't cover our own sin. So the other, only other option is to confess our sin to God because we trust that Jesus in fact paid for it. He is the only one who can actually cover our sin. There really is no other way. So as we turn to this psalm, David begins by saying, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that's why uh, part of where we say that sin must be covered. We see that in this psalm. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. If your sin is covered by God, you are blessed. You are happy. You are satisfied. You are complete. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This psalm I think it's possible uh, that, is, that this psalm is written by David in reference to his sin with Bathsheba. So we know um, from Scripture that Psalm 51 is a psalm that David writes confessing his sin with Bathsheba. But many commentators think that this psalm uh, is perhaps a, a reflection on the forgiveness of God after God has forgiven him from the sin with Bathsheba. If you remember the story about David and Bathsheba... David is uh, the king in Israel, <coughs> and at the time when the kings go out to war to fight, David stays at home. David sees a woman bathing on, on a rooftop, and he lusts in, her, in his heart after her, and he has her brought to him, and he commits adultery with her and sends her home. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's uh, best champions in the land and possibly a, a close friend and counselor of David's, and Uriah is away at war. David finds out from Bathsheba that she is pregnant with his child, and so he decides he needs to cover his sin. He summons Uriah from the front lines in order to uh, give him an opportunity to sleep with his wife and make it look like the child is 
his own. Uriah, though, is faithful to his country. He's faithful to his men that are out on the field. And he refuses to go home and have the comforts of home while his men are sleeping out on the front lines. David tries to manipulate the situation a couple times to get Uriah to do this. But in the end, it's, it doesn't work. And so David has to try another way of covering his sin. He sends Uriah back to the front lines along with a letter to the commander Joab, telling Joab to attack the enemy city and when they get close to have Uriah be in the front, in the front line and then have the troops pull back so that Uriah is exposed. And Joab does this and Uriah is slaughtered. So David uh, conspires and, and brings about the murder of his counselor, his champion, Uriah. And then David is free in his mind to take Bathsheba as his wife. David, if you continue on in the story, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and confronts him. And David experiences acutely the weight of his sin. You see how David committed an initial sin. Perhaps the initial sin was simply laziness. He wasn't out at war when the kings were supposed to be at war. He wasn't out on the front lines with his men. He was at home. And that led him into lust. And that lust led him into adultery. And that adultery led him into lies. And those lies led him to murder. And those, that murder begot more lies. And so David tries to cover over his sin. He tries to cover it in, in different ways. But instead of actually covering it over, he just adds to the pile of sin. And David, we know, experiences this acutely, but he also experiences the deliverance from that sin. And that's what this psalm represents. And so it's in this context, this experience, I think, that David describes the blessedness of the man whose sin and guilt has been lifted away. That's what it means in uh, the, the word forgiven in, the, in verse 1 here. Blessed is the man whose transgression, transgression is another word for rebellion or um, a rebellious sort of disobedience toward God. And his transgression is forgiven. It's like it's lifted away, kind of like a sacrifice is, is offered up to God. His transgression is lifted away. His transgression is covered. It's covered over both in the sense of, of hiding it so that God no longer sees it, but it's also covering in the sense of paying for it, like we cover a debt in some way. So his, David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, to whom the Lord does not attribute or assign guilt for sin. God covers David's sin just like he covered the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Right? Adam and Eve, similarly, they sin in the garden, and what do they do? They try to cover their sin. They cover their, their, their nakedness and their shame with leaves, and then they try to cover over what happened by blaming the other person. They're covering their sin, and does it actually work? Are they actually covered by this? No, but they recognize that sin must be covered. Sin must be covered. They try to cover it themselves, and it doesn't work. But when God forgives us, He covers us with His grace. He covers us like He did with Adam and Eve, with the skin of another, the sacrifice of another. He clothes us in the blood and righteousness of Christ. 
And it's because of this that the Lord does not impute to us the iniquity or the guilt of our sin. Instead, he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. And Paul references this psalm in the, in the passage, the scripture reading that you heard earlier this morning, Romans chapter 4. Paul says that Abraham, his faith was, his righteousness was imputed to Abraham because of his faith, not because of any works that Abraham had done. If God is, is going to impute to you or attribute to you or give to you righteousness so that you can be clean before him, it's not because of anything that you do. It's not because of any, uh, success that you have in your Christian walk. It's only because of the righteousness of Christ. It's only because of the grace of Christ given to you that you can come before him. And this is why David and Paul can say, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Because if you try to cover it yourselves with your own righteousness, you wouldn't be blessed. You wouldn't be satisfied. It doesn't actually take, take care of it. Sin in your life, unconfessed sin in your life is like poison. You can't just cover it over. It's like a festering wound. You can't just hide it. It has to be dealt with and taken to another. And so David describes this desirable state before God, this blessed uh, relationship with God, as though it is actually a possibility. As though it's actually a possibility. And so the question is, how do we get there? How can we be that person? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How can you be the kind of person that, that recognizes in your own life that you are blessed, that there's no guilt, that you are full, that you are satisfied, that you are happy, Some translations translate that word happy. Happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Does that describe you? And if not, how can you be that person? How can you come to be that person in Christ? David had kept silent about his sin. He had tried to cover it up. He had tried to hide it. And verse 2 says that the man is blessed in whose spirit there is no deceit. In whose spirit there's no hiding of your sin. This means that this man has laid himself open before God and has hidden nothing from him. But hiding sin or refusing to acknowledge it to God is simply lying. And John talks about this in 1 John. Flip over to 1 John. Chapter 1, Keith mentioned this earlier. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, Paul, or John is dealing with these false teachings that have to do with sin in your life. There are false teachers that were saying you can walk in darkness, you can walk in ways that are contrary to God's ways and still claim to have fellowship with God. You can say that you have no sin in your life You can claim to be without sin, but John takes these false teachings to task and he says, if you, if you say that you have fellowship with God and you continue to walk in darkness, you walk in ways that are contrary to God as he has revealed himself, you lie and do not practice the truth. And then he also says in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, again, hearing an accusation from God or from his word, 
that there is sin in your life. If you say that, no, I have no sin, John says, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. And then verse 10, if, if we say that we have not sinned, not only are we lying, but we make God a liar and his word is not in us. When you are confronted with uh, an accusation of sin in your life, when you are like David, confronted by Nathan the prophet, and Nathan says to David, you are the man, you are the one who is guilty of this sin. If you are confronted with God's word like that, and you say, no, you justify it, you try to hide it, you blame others like Adam and Eve, John says, you lie and you call God a liar. That's blasphemy. When you are confronted with your sin, if you hide it, you lie and you blaspheme God. And David's silence about his own sin caused him great pain, such that he groaned, or we could translate that word, he roared all day long. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. My bones grew old. David experienced perhaps some physical manifestation of this spiritual condition. David was spiritually sick. He was spiritually poisoned because of this unconfessed sin in his life. And it manifested itself in a physical experience of his, it was like his bones were growing old. He felt weak. He felt brittle. He ached through his groaning all the day long. David also experienced the heavy hand of God upon him day and night. Verse 4. Constantly the Lord is pressing upon David. His heavy hand was, was pressing down upon David day and night, all the time. Now why is this? This is not because the Lord was angry or hating David in some sense, or in one sense, but it was because he was angry with the sin and he was in love for David laying his heavy hand upon him to bring him back to himself. But from David's perspective, all he feels is the heavy hand of God. Because if there's unconfessed sin in your life, you're not aligned with God, you're not following God, you're not in fellowship with God, and all you feel is the wrath of God, the heavy hand of God upon you. But God loved this king, he loved his son David, and he would not allow him to carry on in his sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. So remember, David is experiencing what seems to be almost a, a degenerative disease. He is groaning all day long. He feels the heavy hand of God. And this is what Hebrews says about this kind of chastisement from God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you, and you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. As one commentator says, to sin without feeling the sting of God's disciplinary hand is the sign of illegitimacy. If you have unconfessed sin in your life and you don't feel God's heavy hand upon you, you don't feel your conscience being pricked by the Holy Spirit, that could be a question for you. Am I really a son of God? Am I really a daughter of God? Am I really following Christ? If you don't feel God's chastisement against you, Hebrews says, or if, if you do not experience, if you are without chastening, then Hebrews says, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God's hand was so heavy against David that David's strength was sapped from him, drained like the parched ground in the heat of summer. Verse 4, the end of verse 4, he says, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The sin in David's life made him feel parched, dried up, empty, fragile, the heavy hand of God upon him, groaning, moaning, roaring all day, all night. That's what this poison of sin did in David's life. Do you keep silent about your sin before God? We often think that we can be Christians, that we can live this Christian life while keeping certain parts of our life in darkness. It's really tempting and really easy to think that I can be a Christian because I go to church on Sunday, because I come to worship God, but then on Monday afternoon when I snap at my kids in anger, that's okay, it's not, it's not Sunday though, I've got a week to get ready. I can be a Christian on Sunday, but on, on Tuesday when I'm tempted to lust, that's okay, I'll keep that part of my life separate. Or on Wednesday when I get angry at my wife and I lash out in anger with my words or with my fist. And you think you can keep those parts of your life separate from actually following Christ. You, you can, think you can be silent about these parts of your life. You think it's okay to claim to be a Christian and then be a slave to alcohol on Friday night. You think you can have that part of your life separate from your life following Christ. And again, this is nothing but lies. As John says, as, as we looked at, keeping silent about your sin before God is not simply hiding it from Him, which is interesting. Does, does it work to hide your sin from God? Do you think He doesn't actually know already about it? It's like Adam and Eve in the garden again, remember? God comes into the garden and they try to cover themselves up with some leaves and some, some shrubbery. And God asks them, where are you? Where are you, Adam? What have you been doing? 
like a good father, he already knows what's going on. He's not asking because he's ignorant. Psalm 139 talks about how it doesn't matter if I'm, if I make my dwelling in heaven or in hell. What, all, all the thoughts of my mind, all the words of my mouth, all the paths of my feet, God, you know all of them. God knows all of what's going on in your life. And yet we still try to hide it from him. Right? We're, we're, like the, we're like the little kid that plays hide and seek. Can't see you, so you can't see me. Right? We think that because we are hiding from God, he's not going to be able to actually see what's going on. So not only does it not actually work, not only does it not work to hide your sin from God, it also constantly adds to this pile of gunk in your life. Not only are you guilty of anger, bitterness, gossip, hatred towards your brother, drunkenness, lust. Not only are you guilty of those things, but you're also guilty of lying about them. And if you're guilty about lying about them, John says you also make God a liar. You're also guilty of blaspheming Him in your rebellion. So the question is, why do you keep silent? Why do you hide your sins from God? Why do you claim to have fellowship with God and continue to walk in darkness? The answer, in our, the answer that we have to give is because we do not want Jesus to be Lord over all of my life. I don't want to submit everything to Jesus. I don't want him to be Lord over everything. I'm happy if he's Lord on Sunday. I'm happy if he's Lord when I'm in my community group or my Bible study or with my Christian friends. But then in these other parts of my life, no thanks, Lord. I want to be God here. I want to be God over my choices. I want to be God over how I live my life. And you are unwilling to give it over to him. And so in doing so, you are living a double life. You're trying to serve two masters. And what does Jesus say about that? He says you can't. You can't serve two masters. You can't be God and confess Jesus as Lord. Your claim to be a Christian then, to walk with God, becomes hypocrisy. And as David experienced, living this way saps a person of his vitality. You end up becoming that brittle, weighed down, dried up person that David is talking about. There is no more joy of your salvation. Maybe... For some of you, maybe you remember that, that time when you, uh, you had an experience in your life where you became a Christian. And maybe you remember that and you remember something has drastically changed in your life. And there was this new joy that you had never known before. And now, so many years later, five years later, ten years later, thirty years later, where did that joy go? Did God change? Did Jesus change? No. 
Did you change? Have you, have you turned back to some of those things that you left behind? Have you claimed to initially you give everything over to Jesus when you're converted? And then over time, you slowly say, no, I, I, I want to actually stay God over this part of my life. And I'll take this. Thank you very much. Have you taken those things back away from God or tried to? If you have, then of course there's no joy or less joy in your salvation. If you, are, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, like I said earlier, it's like poison. And it works over time. And it breaks you down. This is heavy and this is hard and I think we can experience this and sometimes we experience this and we try to even hide that experience. We, we hide it. The way that David describes this, it's, it's like he's describing depression. And we like to hide this idea of our, our unconfessed sin in our life and the effects of that under different medical diagnoses, different activities that we need to be a part of different diets that we need to try out. Those all can be good things. And yes, our, our bodies are connected to our spirits. And so sometimes physical helps can be a help, but it's not getting to the root of the problem. If, if what David says here, if that describes you, don't go see a doctor for that unless you've also confessed your sin. Unless you've also examined, is there sin that needs to be confessed in my life? Now, it's not to say, we also need to be careful here, because God brings physical maladies, physical sicknesses, physical trials upon people, not because of their sin. We know that clearly from Scripture. Job is an example. Job is a righteous man, and God brings heavy trials upon him, but not because he's in sin, but because he's a righteous man and God is displaying his glory. Jesus says something similar in the Gospel of John when he heals the blind man. The Pharisees, or before he heals the blind man, the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither, but that, I, that my glory might be revealed. Okay, so we know that God brings physical ailments, maladies, sicknesses, trials, and it's not necessarily because of sin, because of that individual's sin. But that doesn't mean it couldn't be. Does that make, does that make sense? And so when you come to, come to a time where there is that sort of physical affliction that God brings, maybe the first question you should ask is, okay, Lord, is there something I need to confess in my life? Is there something I've left in the dark or tried to hide from you? That we should teach our counselors and therapists to ask that question first. Is there anything in your life that you need to confess to God before we start talking about treatments for X, Y, or Z? Is there anything you need to confess before God? There may or may not be, but we at least should ask the question. Okay, so you can see the, the heaviness of this sin in David's life. How it burdens him, it dries him up. It makes him fragile. He's aching. And yet David abruptly changes. Verse 5. He ceases to keep silent. He ceases to hide his sin. And instead he acknowledges it to God. I acknowledge my sin to you. 
and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God is not surprised by our sin as if he had no idea what we were up to, right? like we said earlier. And so why does David need to acknowledge his sin before God? He's not giving God new information. But this is what it means to confess our sins. It, it is to say the same thing about our sin that God says. And so whatever God and his word calls sin, we must agree with him. We must agree with God about what he says about our sin. And this includes the way in which we talk about it. It's very easy to come up with euphemisms or uh, small ways in, our, in the way we speak about our, our sin to justify it to ourselves. For example, uh, a, a, a sort of funny example, but I think it's actually unfortunately a little true sometimes. I need to ask for prayer for somebody. And then you give all these reasons why you need to ask prayer for this person. Instead of saying, I really need to gossip to you about this person. Right? Prayer requests for other people oftentimes are really a covered up way of gossiping. Or to say that I, you see this broadly in our culture. We don't talk about the way the Bible talks about slavery to different things. Slavery to alcohol. We talk about it as addiction because that sounds a little bit better. It's a little easier. It's a little more medical. It's not quite, it doesn't carry as much guilt with it. Or we might say, I, 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 uh, I lose my temper sometimes and I, and I have a little bit of an anger problem. Instead of agreeing with God and saying, yes, I lash out and I'm angry and bitter towards my wife or children. And we justify it in these little ways through the, the way we use our language. We need to agree with God about what he says about our sin. We need to agree with God. To acknowledge this is to submit ourselves, to acknowledge our sin is to submit ourselves again to our maker and our savior. It's to agree with him. It's to say, yes, Lord, you're right. I am guilty of these things. I am guilty of that lust, that gossip, that bitterness. Yes, Lord. And it also means that you are admitting and acknowledging that you are no longer being your own God. You are no longer claiming to be God over that area of your life. You're willing to submit it all to him. And so David acknowledges his sin. He no longer covers it himself, but instead hands it over to the only one who can truly cover it. Depending on what translation you're looking at in verse 5, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. It might also say my iniquity I have not covered. And it's, it's interesting, it's the same word as in the Hebrew as in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. And David finally says, my iniquity I have not covered. Because you're not blessed if you cover your sin. Because it's ineffective. You're, the man is blessed whose sin is truly covered. Whose sin is covered in Christ. So God declares that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. 
God says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. Jesus' blood washes us over and over and he cleanses away the sin that otherwise would stick on us and continue to gather more and more grime. Right? Sin is, I said earlier, sin is like poison. Sin is also like dirt. And if, if you get dirt on you and you don't wash it off, what happens? It gets worse. Right? If you get dirty and you don't clean it off, it's going to gather, there's more and more dirt's going to gather. And it's going to get everywhere. And it's going to feel nasty. And it just continues to grow and grow and grow until your life is described like David describes it. But Jesus' blood, when we, when we go to him and we confess our sins to him, he washes us clean. Sin is separation from God. Sin is separation from God. And so when, when we don't confess our sin, when we don't agree with God about it, is it any uh, surprise that you feel distant from God? Have you ever described your, your walk with Christ that way before? I just, I, I just feel, dis, I feel like God's distant right now. I think that's a very common way to describe your walk with Christ. And sometimes it's because there's, there's sin in your life. God doesn't feel near because you're hiding from him. Of course he doesn't feel near. And so the answer is to confess that sin. With unconfessed sin in your life, you should expect to feel God's heavy hand upon you. But the answer is not to try to do a lot better, to, to grit your teeth, be a better person. Come on, just stop doing that. No, the answer is to turn and confess the sin. 1 John 1, nine, that verse that, that we looked at and Keith mentioned earlier, it's, it's almost silly how simple it is. Right? If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. It doesn't say if you confess your sin and then you, you do all these really good things to make up for it, you make sure it never is going to happen again, then God's going to forgive you after you've kind of proven it to him. No, he says if you confess your sin, which we talked about earlier, all that means is agreeing with God. Yes, Lord, I did it. Forgive me. Because you're submitting yourself back to him as Lord. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all of it. Now, David also says, this is uh, an interesting part of the psalm, something that I think we don't, we don't think about often. But verse 6, David says that, when other Christians see the grace of God forgiving sin, then they themselves will pray to him. David says, for this cause, having, having been forgiven, having confessed my sin and been forgiven by God, for this cause, everyone who is godly, which is uh, another way you could translate that as loyal to God, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. People looking on, other Christians, other godly people looking on, when they see you 
experiencing the forgiveness of God because you've confessed your sin, they too will pray to him. They too will cry out to him. Probably both in rejoicing with you, but possibly also confessing their own sin. They see the forgiveness and the joy that's been given to you, and they want that also. And here's what's weird about this. Stop and think about this for a moment. My prayer is, God willing, you leave um, this service this morning with a renewed sense of, of needing to come before your Father and acknowledge what you've done to Him. And if you do that, in part, it's because you saw David do that. It, just like he says. You, you, David wrote this psalm thousands of years ago, describing how he was under the heavy hand of God because of his sin. He confessed it. God forgave him. And as we'll see at the end of the psalm, there's so much joy because of it. And because of that, Lord willing, you go from here and you too confess your sins because you want that kind of joy. You want that kind of grace. You want that kind of forgiveness. Here's another example or another way to think about this. Parents, it's really easy to think of, to, to have this idea that you need to maintain a certain kind of perfect image in front of your children. You need to maintain this, uh, this perfect, perfect parent status in front of your kids. But what would be even better, well, first of all, your kids know you're not perfect, so get over it, right? But what would be even better is if you imaged to them, if you exam- uh, were an example to them of what it looks like to confess your sins. When you sin against your kids, don't refuse to acknowledge it, don't hide it, because you don't want to admit to them that you sinned. That would make you look that they would value you less. They would, they would respect you less if they realized that you sinned. They already realized that you sinned. They felt it. And so instead, turn to them and confess your sin. Acknowledge it before God and to them. Why? Because you're teaching them to pray to God. You're teaching them, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Do you want your kids to grow up learning how, how do I confess my sin? How do I deal with this stuff in my life? Do you want them to grow up learning to not hide their sin? Do you want them to learn that? Then show them how. Confess your own sin and let them see that. Let them see that humility. Related to that, kids, I want to give all the children here, I want to give you an exhortation as well. Confessing your sin is actually very, very simple. If you love Jesus and you feel guilty because you lied to your parents, you disobeyed, you were unkind, you you did some of those things and you feel guilty for that, God says, if you confess it, 
If you say to Jesus, yes, Lord, I did that. God says he'll forgive you. It's done. There's no more guilt for it. You're free. And if you learn from however, you old, however old you are now, if you learn to do that now, God will bless that for the rest of your life. Practice that now. Don't practice hiding your sin. Because you'll end up like David, how David's describing it. Your bones are going to feel old and weary. You're going to be groaning and aching. You're going to feel God's heavy hand on you. Instead, don't hide the sin. Confess it. Confess it to Him. Reformation and revival in the church begins with Christians honestly confessing their sins to God with no excuse, no deceit, no more hiding it. Call it what God calls it. Do you want to see reformation and revival in this church? Do you want this church to be full of the Spirit? It starts with confessing your own sins. Do you want to see reformation and revival in the city of Linwood? That reformation and revival starts here, among these people, confessing and acknowledging their sin honestly before their Father. Call it what God calls it. When we do so, then God says he will guide us in the way that we should walk. Verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. When you confess your sins, it's not like God then sets you over here and says, okay, now try again. Good luck with it. No, he walks with you. He's going to instruct you. He's going to go with you through your life. God, God demands a lot, right? But we know from his word that God also gives what he demands. God gives grace to obey him. He gives what he commands. We can, be, uh, we can either walk in obedience to him willingly, we can, we can follow him, we can heed his teaching and instruction, or we can be like foolish and stubborn mules who have to be harnessed and wrenched around in order to stay on the path. You can follow him obediently, or you can be like a dumb animal with a stiff neck and refuse to follow him. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. True. One other thing I uh, forgot to mention here in the previous set of verses, verse 7. This is a, a glorious verse and a comforting verse. You are my hiding place. You are, speaking of, of God, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. What a comfort that is. But I think a lot of times we hear that, hear phrases like that, you are my hiding place, out of context. The context here is, is not particularly that David is being persecuted or that there's um, grave troubles going on around him and that because of that, God is his hiding place, although that's true. But, but I don't think here David is changing the subject. I think actually, you are my hiding place, God, because I've come to you, because I've confessed my sin to you, because I've refused to hide it any longer. 
And it's when you have confessed your sin to God that he actually is your hiding place. His heavy hand is no longer upon you. His, the warm embrace of a father, his arms are around you. Do you want that? To God to walk with you, to instruct you, to guide you, to have his hands on you as a loving father. Then turn to him and confess your sin. Our sin really is, it's dark, it's nasty. We don't understand, we don't realize, we don't acknowledge how wicked it usually, it always is. We usually don't really get that, how wicked our sin is. And the glory of the gospel, though, is this simple grace of God. That if you confess your sins, He will forgive you. And that's it. There may be things that need to go on as you, as you learn and relearn how it is to follow the instructions that he gives, how to walk with him. But that's not where the forgiveness lies. The forgiveness lies in, did you confess your sin and do you trust in Jesus? The way to be rid of the sin in our lives is simply by placing our trust in the only one who can actually do something about it submitting ourselves to Him and agreeing with Him about our sin. And, and honestly, it takes great trust to acknowledge our sins to God. Think, how hard is it to ask forgiveness of another person? Sometimes that's the most difficult thing to do. There are times where the hardest thing that I have done for months is ask my wife to forgive me is the hardest thing that I have done at times. Because what, what are you doing when you are acknowledging your sin? You are opening yourself up. You're saying, yes, I'm wicked. I did that wicked thing. I meant to hurt you. You have to, it is painful. It's humiliating. And so it takes great trust in God that He knows what He's doing when He requires this of you. That He knows what He's doing when He asks you to confess your sins to Him, to one another. Sorrows, this is verse, looking at verses 10 and 11 now, sorrows like depression, anxiety, physical maladies, wasting bones, like David describes, these come to the wicked, those who refuse to confess their sins. But David says there is mercy for the one who trusts in the Lord. Mercy shall surround him. And so that's why we put our trust in him. That's why we trust him even though we are exposed, we feel ashamed, we feel the weight of that guilt when we confess it. But we trust in him because mercy will surround us. And so David, in the context of this, David concludes the psalm calling those who have confessed their sins to rejoice. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. 
Righteous not because you've been perfect. Righteous because you've confessed your sin. And it's done. It's separated as far from you as the east is from the west. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Upright in heart, not because you're a good person. Not because you have it all figured out. Upright in heart because God's giving you and has given you and is giving you and training you to have a new heart with new loves because of the blood of Jesus on the cross. We experience the joy of our salvation when we are again and again washed clean by our Lord and Savior. Do you have joy in your life as a Christian? If you are forgiven, then then this makes sense to you. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you want that kind of joy? Do you have that kind of joy? Then agree with God about your sin. Whatever it is, don't hide it any longer. Don't cling on to it. It it will destroy you. It will make you miserable if it hasn't already. Turn it over to him because he can actually cover it. He can actually deal with it. And then instead of trying to deal with it yourself and feeling really miserable, you turn it over to him. It's actually dealt with. The guilt is gone and you're joyful. There's inexplicable peace and joy in your life. This is a, this is a weekly, daily, hourly practice. Agree with God about your sin and hide it no longer. You can't cover it. You're going to try, and you just can't. But he can, and more importantly, he will. He really will. He is faithful and just. He will forgive you. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. He will do it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Father, this is what your word says. Lord, would you teach us to yearn for that blessedness, to desire the joy of our salvation. Teach us, Lord, to trust in you, and in doing so, to confess our sins to you, to try to hide them from you no more. Father, we know that apart from your Spirit working in us, these things are impossible. So we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would grow us into a confessing and rejoicing forgiven people. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.